We're on the eighth commandment this morning, Exodus 20, 15, you shall not steal. In the years that I've been a pastor, I don't think, or at least I can't remember someone coming to my office for help with greed. I've seen people come to my office for all kinds of needs, marriage counseling, uh, help with career decisions, uh, depression, anxiety, struggles with sexual temptation, uh, struggles with children, how do you raise children? I, I've seen all of that, and I, yet I don't remember, even in the midst of having people come to my office or to me for counsel on various addictions, I don't think I've had somebody come to my office and say, Keith, I am addicted to money. Can you please help me? Hasn't happened. Or for somebody to say, Keith, I am a materialist and I can't get free from my stuff. What do I do about it? You know, it's ironic that the topic that Jesus speaks most about, or one of the topics that he speaks most about, which is money, is one of the topics that shows up least in the pastor's office or in a counselor's office. And you say, why is that the case? I don't know, other than materialism runs under the radar, could be partially due to what we see in the story of the rich young ruler. Uh, that, that part of it is having to admit that I've got a problem, that I am too addicted to my stuff, but then the second part of that is the fear of if I admit this problem and go try to get help, I may actually have to let go of some of it. And I love it. Right? That's where the rich young ruler found himself. This eighth commandment, you shall not steal, is all about money, stuff, possessions, but it goes deeper than that, as we're going to see. So what does the eighth commandment call for? What is it asking of you? What is God asking of you in the Eighth Commandment? And we're going to see it calls for, for three things. First, it's a call to treasure. It's a call to treasure. Now, let's, let's start by unpacking the Eighth Commandment in its context. Remember, God's people were at the base of Mount Sinai in the wilderness. And God sent Moses up, and he came down with the Ten Commandments. That were to form a community of people who loved God and loved one another. That was the purpose of all the commandments, including the eighth. And God was also preparing his people for the promised land. When God's people got to the promised land, he didn't give them wilderness and desert. He gave them vineyards and fig trees and farmhouses and cultivated lands and towns. He, he gave them land and gifted them with it. And although the land belonged to God, he gave them instructions on how to use it and how to own it, so to speak, or to be a steward of it. And so he gave them instructions. We read an instruction in Deuteronomy 19.14, very detailed. It says that anyone who would Move a boundary stone would break God's law. Well, what's moving a boundary stone? It's basically stealing land, right? I'm going to take my little 
survey marker and move it over about five feet. Get five more feet of land. It's, it's stealing. God says that's, that's, that's breaking God's law, right? And the purpose of what he gave this gift of land for to his people. And so as we see God give his people this land, the question unfolds, was Israel's inheritance, because that's what it was. God was giving them an inheritance. Was it ultimately land or was there something deeper behind the, the symbol of the land and what he was giving them? And there was something deeper. It was embedded in Israel's history. It was a foretaste of what was to, go, to come. And it was the inheritance of Levi. You see, when, when God's people got to the promised land, he, he portioned out the land to the, to the tri- tribes of Israel and then to extended families and to individuals. He portioned out the land except for the tribe of Levi. The tribe of Levi didn't get land. And what we read in Numbers 18.20 As God says to Aaron, who is one of the priests in the tribe of Levi, he says, you shall have no inheritance in their land. Neither shall you have any portion among them. I am your portion and your inheritance among the people of Israel. So all the tribes got land except for Levi's tribe. And God said, I am your inheritance. God himself. And then we see this in in King David in Psalm 16. We see this true inheritance or the deeper inheritance and the hint at it in David's language when he says, the Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me. Lines, right? We're talking boundary lines, but lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. Now, David loved Bethlehem, but certainly he was talking about something deeper than a plot of land there. And then you move on to the prophet Isaiah, and Isaiah starts to prophesy how the land, the earthly inheritance that Israel received was going to fall to plunder, and it was going to fall to sin, and sin was going to start to wreak havoc on it. In Isaiah 24, the the earth shall be utterly empty and utterly plundered. The earth mourns and withers. The earth lies defiled under its inhabitants. And by the time we get to the New Testament, you've got the apostle Peter speaking about an inheritance that can't be plundered, about not an earthly inheritance that can be plundered. He says in in chapter one, verse four, an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you. And then in chapter two, two, Peter goes on to say in verse nine, you're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. And now we see it come full circle. This inheritance of Levi that was for the Levitical priests, that was God himself as your inheritance, that was a hint. It was a foretaste. And by the time we get to the New Testament, Peter says, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you're a priest, which means that your inheritance, right, like the Levitical priests, is God himself. It's God himself. And so a hint in the Old Testament after the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ gets blown up open to a full reality that your inheritance, your treasure is God himself. And we see Jesus pick this up in the Sermon on the Mount. As you've seen, the Ten Commandments, we see a lot of echo in the Sermon on the Mount. And Jesus is the better Moses on a mount, explaining the Ten Commandments in fuller language, getting to the heart of them, not just the externals, but the heart. And so what he says in Matthew chapter 6, I encourage you to Join with me in your Bible or in your sermon guide. Matthew 6, verses 19 through 24. 
Jesus says, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. See the connection to the eighth commandment here. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. The word treasure here, it means uh, treasure box. It's, a, it's that box that you would protect, that you would keep, that you would store away in a safe place. And what Jesus is saying is that what you treasure ultimately will control your heart and that you'll be devoted with your life to that which controls your heart. So let me give you a few examples. If you love or treasure money, you will be controlled by money. If you love or treasure the praise of people, you will be controlled by people. If you love or treasure alcohol, you will be controlled by alcohol. If you love or treasure your career, you will be controlled by your career. Now, I've broadened it out here so you can see how the heart functions, but Jesus is very specific in this passage. He's talking about money. He says you can't serve God and money. You say, well, what's this have to do with the Eighth Commandment? You shall not steal. Well, it works something like this. If, if you love or treasure money, you potentially will steal from the IRS by cutting corners on your taxes. Or if you love or treasure money, you will steal from the poor by not meeting the needs of those who are poor or who have need. Or if you love and treasure money, you will steal or rob God of his tithe, as the, as the prophet Malachi talks about. The point is this, that what your heart treasures, you will serve and it will control you. And what we see throughout the story of the scriptures is that God is our ultimate treasure and inheritance, not something he gives or what's coming, but him himself and his son, Jesus Christ, that Jesus is the treasure. And that's where this discussion on the eighth commandment starts. Because everything I'm going to talk about, the next two calls flow right out of that. This call to treasure the person of Jesus Christ. Not what comes from his hand, but the person of Jesus Christ. So second, the Eighth Commandment, it's a call to treasure. Second, it's a call to invest. It's a call to invest. We're going to look at Luke 19, and I'm not going to take you there to read it, but in Luke 19, there's a wonderful parable that gets around this idea of investment, and I will, I'll summarize it for you. But it's a parable about a nobleman who goes off to a far-off country to receive a kingdom and then to return. And Jesus tells this parable as he's nearing Jerusalem to go to the cross. Because people are saying that the kingdom is coming imminently because they believe Jesus is gonna to get to Jerusalem and take his kingly rule and the kingdom of God is gonna come in full. And Jesus knows better. He's going to die 
at least usher in the beginning of his kingdom, but his kingdom's not coming full until his second coming. And so he's going to go away. And so he's preparing his followers to have proper expectations of what they would be called to in between his first and second coming when he has gone away. Kind of what their marching orders are. So he tells this parable. The nobleman is about to go away to receive a kingdom in return. So he calls 10 of his servants to him, and he gives each one of them a mina, which is just a, it's a, it's a currency, it's a, an amount of money. And it's equal to about three months' wages. He gives them the mina, he goes off, he returns, and he calls his servants to him to see what they had gained by doing business with what he had given them. The one servant returns 10 more minas, then the second servant returns five more minas than what he got, and then the third servant takes the one mina that the nobleman had given him and gives it back to him. Didn't do anything with it. And listen to what the nobleman says to him. Why did you not put my money in the bank? And at my coming, I might have collected it with interest. In other words, why didn't you, why didn't you invest it and make something more like the previous two servants did? And what we learn from this parable is two very powerful truths that Jesus is trying to communicate. The first is this, that you and I ultimately own nothing, that God owns it all. Just like in this parable, the servants were given a gift, and, and, and the nobleman said, go do something with this gift, right? That everything we have, everything we're given from our time to the way we're gifted, our talents, to our treasures, our stuff, our possessions, is a gift from God. We don't own it. We're simply stewards of it. James 1.17, every good gift, every perfect gift comes from God. Everything. And so that's the first truth, is that, that we don't own anything. It all belongs to God. Now, the second truth is this, that we see out of this parable that we're called to invest the gifts that God has given us to advance his kingdom. That we're called to invest what he's given us to advance his kingdom. It's interesting. The first two servants do that, right, in the parable. They go off, they invest, they make more, and return it to the nobleman. The third one doesn't risk using his. He doesn't even risk putting the mina in a, with, a, with a bank or with a money lender. He doesn't risk it. And Jesus' response in this parable is you should have. You say, well, wait a minute. Is Jesus recommending risk? Is Jesus recommending risk? Well, there's risk with every investment, isn't there? I mean, just take finances. You put money in the stock market, you're taking a risk. Okay? You, you invest money somewhere else to get interest, you're taking an inherent risk. And there are certainly applications here to, to money, but I think Jesus is driving deeper. Right? That there is risk with investment. And that what Jesus is asking for here is that he says, listen, in the immediate context, I'm about to go to the cross. I'm going to go away for a while. And I'm giving you gifts, and I want you to use those gifts to further my cause, right? The use of Jesus' gifts can be compared to a broker who would invest your money. 
That's what we're talking about here. Jesus says, you're my manager, and I'm giving you these gifts. Now invest them for the sake of my kingdom, to further my kingdom. I mean, think about it. Would you be happy if uh, your broker came to you at the end of this past year and said, you're not going to believe it? Are you ready? You need to sit down. I didn't lose any of your money this year. I got you 0% return. Isn't that awesome? Uh, You would say, no, (laughs) I could have put it under my pillow. No, I I, I gave it so that it could grow and multiply. Now I'm using a financial example, but what Jesus says, and this is where it drives deeper, is he's not just talking about, not just talking about money here, though he is. And we'll get to that. He's talking about the gifts he's given you, the talents, the spiritual gifts he's given you for the sake of his kingdom. You say, well, where does the risk come in? Are there risks? Look at the life of the Apostle Paul. Proclaim the gospel to hostile crowds. Receive death threats. Yes, there's risk to invest in your gifts for the sake of the kingdom. Now, you may not receive death threats, But there's risk of rejection. There's risk of ridicule. There's risk of exhaustion. There's risk of of emotional burden and stress. There are lots of risks associated with taking the gifts that God has given you and unleashing them in the kingdom. There's lots of risk. And here's Here's where it really dials down to a heart level. The question is not, are you risking? The question is, where are you placing your risk? Because there's some of you in this room who are taking massive risks for the sake of your careers. It's not a question of, I'm I'm just playing it safe everywhere. Everyone is risking. And the reality is, you will risk all of that. Ridicule, rejection, failure, exhaustion, emotional burden, emotional stress, all of that. You will risk it for where your treasure is. Some of you have taken big risks with your money. And maybe you've lost. Think about the risks that you will take to get somebody to like you. Think about the risk that you'll take. And so the issue is we risk because we invest. And yet with the church, we play it safe. With the church, we play it safe. And we we tithe our 2%. We serve our rotation in the nursery, maybe begrudgingly. We fail to get involved. We play it safe. And now this is, this is a delicate water for the pastor to tread on, and I'll acknowledge that, because I'm talking about your money, your time, your service to the church, and here's why it's delicate, at least on the appearance of it. It seems self-serving, right? Give us your money, give us your time, give us your service, and, and here's the problem, and why it seems self-serving, and why it's delicate. This church does not belong to me. It doesn't belong to the elders. Christ Church Mandarin doesn't belong to Chuck Colson. Christ Church in town doesn't belong to Dave Abney. 
Ponte Vedra PCA doesn't belong to Richard Cooper. Westminster PCA doesn't belong to Steve Jennings. Celebration doesn't belong to Stovall Weems. 1122 doesn't belong to Joby Martin. Image Church downtown doesn't belong to Matt Jensen. River City Church doesn't belong to Antley Fowler. It is the church of Jesus Christ. Jesus says, I will build my church, and the gates of hell won't prevail against it. So, I tithe to Christ Church East, just like some of you do. Had somebody ask me a couple of years ago, and they were a little bit sheepish about it, and I don't know why exactly they asked. They, they didn't go here. They went somewhere else, but maybe they had a curiosity. They said, Keith, now, you're the pastor of Christ Church East, right? I said, yeah. Do you tithe to Christ Church East? I said, absolutely. So you tithe to your church? I said, well, no, I tithe to Christ Church East. It's not my church. It's Jesus Christ's church. So yes, I tithe to Christ Church East that belongs to Jesus. I also serve Christ Church East that belongs to Jesus Christ with the gifts God's given me. So I teach and I lead. No different than right now, there are people using their gifts to teach children down the hallway. No different than this morning, there are people sitting in here that got up at the crack of dawn to get here to set this place up. No different than there are musicians that are using their gifts that got here very early to practice and to serve the body. No different than I could go on and on with the Connect team. We all are given gifts to serve the church that belongs to Jesus Christ. And there's risk that comes with that. I mean, talk to the people that got up at the crack of dawn this morning. There's risk of exhaustion, and they do it once a month. Or when you're teaching and you're pouring yourself out, of course there's risk associated with serving in the church of Christ. And this explains Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 6. When he says, lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, that lay up for yourselves, he's saying invest. Invest. Not in things on earth, but things in heaven. I want you to invest. I want you to take a look at this this rope. I've got a lot here. Okay, I'm not going to pull it all out, but I'm going to make enough to make a point. Okay. So this little blue end on the rope, this represents the history of the world from Genesis 1 to when Jesus Christ returns. Okay, there it is. That's the history of the world. Now within this little blue section, a sliver, I don't even think I could get it small enough, is your life. The rest of this rope is eternity. It's the new heavens and the new earth that will go on and on and on. And Jesus says, I want you to invest in this, the heavens, the new heavens, the new earth, eternity, by investing in my church that I am building that's existing in this blue section. We spend a lot of time investing with great risk stuff that won't get out of this blue section. 
And Jesus says, why would you invest so much risk and stuff that's stuck in here when there is an eternity waiting that we're preparing for? And so he says, lay up for yourselves treasures in this by investing in my church. Because my church, in between the first and second coming, is representing my kingdom and advancing my kingdom. That's why Jesus said, I will build my church and through it, I will build my kingdom. And so he says, invest. You see, stealing is not just what you take. It's what you fail to give. A failure to invest your God-given talents, and I mean time, your spiritual gifts, the way God's wired you to serve in his kingdom, and your money, all of it, time, talents, and treasures, a failure to invest those in the eternal kingdom of God is stealing. And so the eighth commandment calls us to treasure, a call to invest, and finally, it's a call to generosity. The opposite of stealing is not not stealing, okay? The opposite of stealing is generosity. It's giving. We see this in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 28. Paul says it this way, let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Paul says, don't steal. Why? So that you'll have something to give to someone in need. In other words, don't steal so that you can love your neighbor and that you can meet your neighbor's needs, whatever they may be. There's a compelling example of generosity. It's in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. It's the first four verses. And it's, it's always, a, it, it is challenging. It's convicting. And you'll see why. Listen to this. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. Okay, so you had the churches in Macedonia. There were believers in Jerusalem, back in Jerusalem, that had deep needs. Okay? The grace given to the churches of Macedonia, for in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed into a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means, so it it was giving till it hurt, of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. They were begging to give. And you say, are you kidding me? When's the last time you begged? You pleaded, will you please let me give some more? When's the last time that happened? That's what we find here. They're begging to give. And you say, how in the world can they be doing that? What could produce such a thing? Several verses later in 2 Corinthians 8, verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, that you by his poverty might become rich. You see, you will never beg to give 
until you realize that what you give no longer has the power to satisfy your deepest desires or to justify your existence. In other words, you'll never be a generous giver until Jesus redefines wealth for you. Jesus doesn't just bang on your will and say, give, give, give. He goes to your heart because he knows that until I can free up this person's heart, they'll never be a generous giver. And he has to redefine wealth for you. Now we've come back full circle to treasure. To treasure. There's a story in Luke chapter 7. It's a great story. It's about a woman. She's a prostitute and she crashes a dinner party. And it's a dinner party of Jesus and the Pharisees. And they're around the dinner and they're reclining at the table, which means that they're on their elbow, their feet are out away from the center and the table. And we read in Luke 7 that this woman comes up, presumably to Jesus' feet, and she's weeping. And her tears start to drop onto Jesus' feet, which was probably the first time he realized somebody's behind me. And then she bends down and she takes her hair and she starts to, with the tears, starts to wipe Jesus' feet, which was an incredibly kind act in that day because the roads were dusty and people's feet got dirty and smelly and they cracked. And, they, and so it was incredibly loving what she was doing. And then it goes on. It says that she broke an alabaster flask of ointment that we estimate was probably a year's worth of wages. And she broke it and she used that ointment to start to, to soothe Jesus' feet and to anoint his feet. And whenever we read that story, quickly we run to, wow, how did she give away that much money or the equivalent of something that expensive? And yet there's something much deeper in that story. You see, she was a prostitute. And women in that day would, would carry the flask or the ointment flask around their neck because it gave off a wonderful fragrance. It was like a perfume. And so this flask around her neck is what made her attractive. It's what made her desirable. It's what made her good at her job. And she broke it. And she dumped it all out on Jesus' feet. You see, this flask represented her paycheck, her power, her worth, her security as a human being. And she let go of all of that because it no longer was her worth and her security and her power. Jesus was. And so she surrendered to Jesus, knowing that she'd never have to surrender to a man again like she did every night. Because Jesus had redefined not only wealth, but her worth, her identity, who she was as a woman. And so Jesus comes to you this morning in the eighth commandment that's all about treasure and inheritance and about generosity and about investing. And he says, will you let me redefine wealth for you? that for your sake, I became poor, Jesus says, that through my poverty, you might become rich. Let's pray.
Father, every person in this room this morning, to some degree, is in love with money, stuff, possessions. Jesus, I believe it's the reason you spoke about it so much because you know the human heart and you know how we cling. And yet, Jesus, you came to redefine wealth for us. That our wealth is tied to nothing here on earth. That it's not tied to our bank account. It's not tied to our portfolio. It's not tied to our cars or our house or our land or our savings. That as Peter says, it's an inheritance that is undefiled, that can't be touched, it's in heaven. And that Jesus, that inheritance is you. It's not just things you give, it's you. And so would you, in your kindness, in your grace this morning, by your Holy Spirit, would you invade our hearts in such a way that our union with you is what, what would define us? And give us our identity and give us our worth. And that the things that we have that we can touch, that we would be free to let them go. And to give them away, to be generous with your church, with your people, even with people outside the faith, that they might see a picture of the generosity of a good, good father. Father, as we come to this table this morning, we are about to partake in an extravagant feast. It's a foretaste of an incredibly extravagant feast that will happen at the end of time. But you give us this morning, in, in this bread and in this cup, a spiritual feast, and we, we pray and trust that you will come meet with us by your Spirit to the depth of our hearts, that we would receive your grace, and that in even this moment, you would redefine wealth for us, and that we would walk out of here rich in you. And we pray this all in Christ's name. Amen.